I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm talking to Ian Reid about his latest novel, Foe. Ian Reid is the author of two critically acclaimed award-winning books of non-fiction. His internationally best-selling debut novel, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, has been published in more than 20 countries. Oscar winner Charlie Kaufman is writing and directing a film based on the novel, which Reid will co-produce. Today we're going to be talking about Ian's second novel, Foe, um, which is just recently out in the UK. Ian, welcome to Little Atoms. Oh, thank you so much for having me. How would you describe the novel? Well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty tough question. I think I've been, I've been attempting to do that, I think, for you know several months now, basically since the book has come out and I've been talking to people about it. And, and you know what, maybe it actually goes back even before that when I was trying to explain it to people, you know, before, as I was working on it, including, you know, my agent and people at my publisher. And it's, it's always been a tricky book, I think, to, to try and describe. But I, I think sort of the best way to do it is to, in some ways, provide the least amount of information as possible. So really, this, I think, is a book about a, a rural couple who live um, a very quiet existence sometime in the near future. And um, one night, completely out of the blue, their existence is kind of disrupted, thrown into disarray uh, with the arrival of a stranger. And he's bringing some potentially life-altering news to, to one of them. And hopefully the book kind of, from that point, develops from there. And But I think the more, the more I kind of reveal beyond that um, might detract from... Um, what people might get from it. So, yeah, I would say it's a story about this couple. It's a, it's really a book about marriage and relationships, and you know there are elements of suspense and science fiction a little bit, and uh, I think a variety of different things that I, I ended up using um, to ter- to try and tell this story. And indeed, it is one of those books that we can't really talk too much about the plot without giving too much away. But in terms of how you've just described not wanting to to sort of reveal too much, and indeed that's how the book works. Junior, who is a narrator, it's a first-person narration, Yeah, um, he's classically in this position of having limited knowledge, not only about the world around him, so we don't hear that much about the outside world. Right. Um, but also about what's going on in the story. He's, he's, I guess, a sort of version of an unreliable narrator. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think, you know, for me, the idea of using first person, not something that I, I kind of set out to do um, when I'm starting a, a book, I think any book, I, I don't really know what I'm, what I'm doing. I, I don't write a detailed outline. I think I'm in the minority um, and I, and I, w- I certainly wouldn't direct others um, looking for, you know, writing advice to do it this way. But for some reason, I've never been able to do that. It doesn't sort of seem to interest me. I just don't think I would do it very well. Um, I would feel kind of locked into what, whatever the outline was. And I think for me, just the idea of, you know, you learn about a story as you write it. So I'm not sure how, how I would even write an outline to something I haven't written yet, because that's how I start to understand and, and know what the story is, is by writing it. So when I started, I didn't know who would be telling the story, or I kind of knew what the ideas that I wanted to write about. Um, and, and as I wrote, it started to become clear it had to be a first person, and, and, and Junior was the one who was going to narrate this, this story. Um, I, I mean, I think generally, you could almost say every, every narrator in a certain way is unreliable to, to varying degrees. So I think my hope was that, you know, his his narration would be kind of enticing for readers that once they started reading this book, I, I did want a sense of urgency in this story. And I and I, I, w- I found the idea of suspense appealing. And my hope was that sort of within a, you know, within one or two or three pages, um, readers would be um, wanting to continue. And it's a it's not a very long book either. So I think in the back back of my mind, similar to my first novel, they're both books, I think that readers can potentially sit down and, and, you know, they can read in one or two sittings, which I think is sort of ideal for, you know, for reading. If you can get through it quickly, that's best because everything that happens in the beginning, you will still remember. You can recall by the end of the book. So that seemed appealing to me as well. So tell us a bit more about Junior, what what we can talk about him, because I guess not only is he, as I said, we're hearing the story from his perspective, and that's a somewhat Mm -hmm. limited perspective, but also... At the beginning of the book, he's vague. He's sort of, yeah. let's say, forgotten mm-hmm. a lot about mm-hmm. his past. Yeah, yeah. I think when we pick up, that's right, when we pick up the story. And the other thing is, I think he's very much caught off guard by what's happened in his life and the arrival of this, this man to his house. I think he's someone who goes about his, his business and his life and his work um, in a way that he finds the routine appealing and he understands his life his life is very simple um he's he's kind of created the life that he likes and that he wants including his his home existence and the relationship he has with his wife Henrietta and his work um he's been working at the same mill for a while he understands that and when this man arrives with the new with the, the news that he does have that throws everything kind of off and it throws it throws junior um his world it kind of turns it upside down. And that's when we as the readers are introduced to him and meet him. So that felt like an interesting moment to meet him. Because as I said, I think he's someone who likes order. Um, He likes understanding things. And I think what was interesting for me as well, as I worked on this story and, you know, started writing this book, was how really it became about Henrietta for me, this this story. I think of it as kind of her story. Um, She emerged as I was working on it as the focal point. And, you know, that's as as it has come up, as I've been talking about this book a little bit, how really more than anything it is about marriage. And one of the very you know first things that got me started on this book, one of the moments of inspiration, I guess, at the beginning when I was I just finished my previous novel and I was kind of deciding what I wanted to write about. One thing I can say is that I was I had it in my mind I wanted to write about space. Um, my brother works in the space industry. He, was, he had been he had spent time working at NASA and 
um, I, I wanted to use him as a resource. Whenever we would get together, I felt like I was always kind of peppering him with questions about space because I was interested. I felt like I didn't know a lot about it and he could provide these, these you know, elaborate answers. Also, sometimes, with, you know, we would be out watching a movie and if it was, I particularly remember once and, and you know, he could, he could easily kind of ruin a movie about space by pointing out the, the inaccuracies and the flaws. And I thought, you know, if I ever write a book about space, I, I, I want it to be accurate. So I, I knew I kind of wanted to do that. And I wasn't sure exactly how I would do that. But um, I had then gone to see a, an author who was winning an award. And uh, he was a male author. And he, was, he won this award and it, during his acceptance speech. He thanked his wife. And he thanked her in such a way that, to me, although the rest of the people in the crowd seemed to me like they were acting they seemed to like it. it. It felt very almost icky to me. It felt the way he said it, if her name, let's say just to make it up was Jane, he, he something along the lines of, you know, and I want to thank Jane for being there. And, and, you know, as I've always needed her, um, it, it felt to me like he was saying, you know, thanks to Jane for propping up my genius. And, uh, I just thought, you know, what, what about Jane? What do you think? What does she do? Is she here? Let's hear from her. She must have her own stuff. She must have her own interests. And, that really got me thinking about, you know, marriage and a certain type of marriage. And I, and I realized that's what I wanted to write about. I knew I could write about that. I knew I could think about that for a few years and, and that there was a story there. And that's, that was sort of the very beginning of how I, how I started writing Faux. And indeed, as this book starts, and as, as far as Junior is concerned, Henrietta is, you know, she's quite passive to begin with. She's happy as far mm-hmm. as he's concerned in this role of being, you know, his wife on this farm. And right. of course, we're only seeing Henrietta through his eyes. Exactly. But it's obvious that he's, you know, from, from, from early on, it's obvious that he, you know, he misunderstands her and he's, he's not mm-hmm. entirely sure what's going right. on, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I think so. And again, that to me was, I think I wanted it to be sincere to, to what I was writing about. And I wasn't, in this case, interested in writing about a marriage that was fractured because of some one simple, or not simple, but one single dramatic act, like an affair, something like that, which I think we often come across in books and film. I wanted to write about a marriage that was slowly decaying, I think, over time, and that how, you know, the perception that one person has in a marriage might not actually be the way the other person's perceiving it. Um, and you know why is that? And and to me that's a scary thought, especially if it's if, especially if it's sort of compounded by this idea of the isolation of a farmhouse. And I you know that's I I grew up in the country. I grew up on on a farm myself, and I think that's why both of these novels uh, take place in the country. It's sort of what I know, and I, I find that I, I find it kind of appealing to write about it. And I had a an image again very early on when I was working on Faux. Um, which again is often sort of how I start something is, is just an image. And the image I had was just this old farmhouse, very old farmhouse, quite large. And there were two people living there, a couple, a married couple, but they were living in separate rooms. For some reason, I, I became a little bit obsessed with that idea and that image. And, I, and it sort of got me working on this story. And it kind of took off from there, basically. But, but you know, as you know, having read it, really most of the book is there. <laughs> it's it's um, it's that the house itself is very much part of the book and is almost a character, as is the landscape. And I think there's something about you know a house and, and a house being kind of in the middle of nowhere that be, that sort of adds confinement to, to a marriage that I think already feels confining to one of the one of the people in it. In this case, 
Um, and it, it also kind of worked, I think, in contrast to the space element of this story, um, which is, well, space is, you know, literally endless. So the idea of a, of a one particular farmhouse, I think, sort of compounded that feeling and that sense of confinement. And so into this house, this as far as Junior is concerned, domestic bliss, comes Terence, who's the the representative of um, Outermore, a sort of, you know, a huge... Yep presumably multinational company. Tell us something about Terence. You know, Terence was, uh, again, he was, he, he was, he was kind of fun to write for me. I, I found myself, even though I would say this is a fairly, I don't think this book would ever be found in sort of the humor section of a bookstore. I found myself laughing quite a bit when I was thinking about Terence and when I was working on his story and his dialogue and thinking about his demeanor. And, you know, I do spend quite a bit of time, you know, especially a book like this, there aren't, there aren't many characters. And I really, as I'm writing, you know, early on, I spend time thinking about these characters, and I, I I write a lot about about them that isn't in the book. Just for myself, I think that's helpful for me. And a lot of the stuff with Terrence, I found myself laughing sometimes. You know, and and I think the way he carries himself, the way he talks, he's he's quite confident. He's a little bit younger than 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 Junior and Henrietta. You know, he's he's certainly more urban. He's more intellectual. He's articulate. And so he kind of, he, he, I think particularly Junior, he kind of throws Junior off right away. Junior's not quite sure what to make of him. And especially the longer he's there, Junior starts to develop particular theories about him. And I think my sense of talking to, you know, since since Foe has come out and hearing from readers, I think people are often asking me about Terrence and saying there are moments of the book when they are kind of, they feel themselves aligning with him. But then the very next page, they feel like they, they really dislike him. And they don't trust them, so that I think was part of my motivation in 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 this character was not really offering readers a chance to fully um, feel comfortable in their judgments and their sort of in the way they understand Terence. Um, I think it it kind of changes throughout. At least I hope that that for me is an appealing idea. Um, if you don't ever feel like you can get a full grip of what he is like, but he certainly is. He's a little bit slippery, and he smiles a lot. And I and uh, there's there was something about him that that even myself as I was going I didn't really trust. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. 
Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Ian Reid, and we're talking about his latest novel, Foe. And Ian, before we broke there, you were just talking about how, in the writing of the book, you like to write a backstory to the to the characters that doesn't necessarily end up in the book itself. And I wanted to talk about that same idea, but in terms of this world, because... The farm is set in this, as you said, just slightly in the future. The world seems to be depopulated, perhaps. Something's clearly gone on, but it's never really sort of discussed what it is. It's obviously set in the future because there is, you know, there's vague allusions to future technology like driverless cars and things yeah. Yeah. um and obviously the space obviously we haven't really talked about the, the the space element yet but we will um the installation which is the the sort of space station that's that, that's being built right. but i wondered if you would you know how you envisioned this world when you were putting the world together what is the of this world that you can tell us that's not in the book in that exact way you just described yeah, well, actually, the, that's right, and I think this will probably be n- maybe not a very satis- satisfying answer because the, I, I don't know how much I would want to reveal. I think what I would say is that there there are some other elements. I think n- maybe not a whole lot. I think that might surprise some readers that I actually don't really want to spend too much time, you know, kind of world building just for the sake of it or, or just for my own understanding. I, I I tend to do that a little bit more with characters and put characters and you know, particular situations that I feel like will help me understand them and that maybe will not make it into the book. Although I think initially I don't know that. And it's the same with anything to do with the world and the environment and the setting. As I'm writing it, I'm including a lot of this, any of that stuff sort of in the book. It's sort of after, as I've, as I've completed the first few rounds of editing that I then become, I start to remove a lot and I, and I want to leave sort of just the bare minimum. And that's sort of why I wouldn't, probably in this context either, you know, reveal too much more because I don't want to provide everything for readers. I think that for me, I don't like that idea for myself. You know, I use myself as a reader as sort of, I think, my gauge as I'm working. And the the books that I find that I'm most drawn to are ones that I feel like I I get to kind of complete it. I get to finish the book. And that happens more if the author 
gives me the opportunity to do that. So I, I had that in my mind as well. I, I, I wanted to give just enough that it wouldn't be confusing, that readers would be following this story and understanding what was happening. But if you start to, and again, this is just for me, I, I know that most people, most authors probably don't, don't think this way, but I think it's a, it's a bit of a fine line. It's a bit of a balance to try and, to try and do it. But I, I always skew, I think, towards not revealing too much. So just as you said, I think, yeah, there are, there are some indicators here of what, what kind of world we're living in with the canola fields around and, you know, there's a, there's a livestock ban at this point in this area of, of, you know, farmland where they're living and there are driverless cars now. So I think that indicates that it's probably sometime in the near future, but really not all that far off. I mean, I think, I think to my mind, I think driverless cars are essentially already here. I mean, they are, but I think it seems to me like in the next decade or so, we're going to look back on the fact that we drove at all as humans and we're, we're going to find that absurd. You know, the way we laugh at people who smoke, we used to smoke on airplanes and we'll think, I can't believe we were driving cars at one point. So, you know, I wanted to give some context, but also allow readers to kind of fill it in on their own. And each reader then, I think, creates their own uh, version. And that's also something I like. And that location, the farm. So you've talked about, you know, the growing up and, you know, a farm a farm being like a, you know, a, a classic isolated place for this sort of domestic drama to take place in, but also in this sort of near future setting. I was reminded of a number of recent films, whether it's Interstellar or Looper or um, yep. uh, Logan even. Um, yeah. And I don't know whether this is just a North American thing, and obviously I'm sort of from the UK and it's a tiny place. Yeah. <laughs> but this idea of, you know, the, the prairie land, isolated populations out in this prairie land as a setting for what is ostensibly, a you know, a, a novel set in the future, I think is a really interesting idea. Yeah, yeah, it is, uh, and, and it's like it's almost almost like what I was saying with the narrator. I think it, it's I, it's not sort of an intellectual decision for me. Um, it feels very much, and this I think you know as I think about this answer, it kind of goes with my approach to to writing. You know, early on, I think I I, I attempt or I try to to be, I try to be more instinctive about things um, and not overly intellectual about what I'm working on. Just you know, for me, um, and that includes everything, you know, and setting is one of those things. It just, I just try and once I have, a, you know, a, some questions that I'm, I'm, I'm interested in some images, one or two images, and I start this and I start a story, if it takes, and it may not, sometimes I will start something and then after, you know, several weeks or months, it doesn't take and I, I move on to something else. But if it takes and I start to become excited by it or interested or scared and I continue, it's the sort of, the intellectual decisions kind of come into it much later for me. I don't fully know know why, but I, I don't really question that. It's, it's just sort of the way I work. And, and I think that in this case, you know, I mean, my, my very first book, which was a nonfiction book, which was kind of a humorous memoir, really, about a year that I moved home to my parents' farm after university. And I was, wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I ended up kind of back there thinking it might be for a week or two and it ended up being this year. So I wrote about it and I kind of wrote about my parents and, you know, they're, they're kind of quirky and funny and um but 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 uh wonderful people and when my first novel came out several years later i'm thinking of ending things there's also a farm in that in that story and part of the the plot is surrounded this couple who are driving to the farm to visit parents on the farm and people who had read one bird's choice i remember interviewing me for i'm thinking of anything saying 
we thought your parents were so nice in your first book and, and we didn't realize they were so creepy. And they had been, you know, basically assuming that the parents and I think many were, were like my parents. And I had to remind them that this book was fiction and it was made up. And, um, but I just seem for whatever reason to be drawn to that landscape for, for setting. I think, I mean, the, I think the most obvious reason is that I'm familiar with it and, and I know it. And I, I still spend a lot of time on the farm and I, I often write there and I often am, am sort of, I look after it sometimes if, if my parents are away and they need someone to be there, I will go up there and I'll, so I'll be there alone for stretches of time. And, um, I, I'm familiar with that. And it, it's, for me, it's a, it's conducive to writing and, and for whatever reason, these stories, um, tend to tend to kind of follow me there, I guess. And, and it, it, it feels, it feels natural. I said, we haven't talked about the space elements of the book. And indeed, you know, you mentioned in the you know, first half wanted to write about space, but really it's also something that's only really vaguely alluded to yeah. in the book. Yeah. And and for large parts of the of the story I was wondering, you know, if if it was even really a thing. Yeah. Um yeah. basically what we what this book is, which I think is 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 amazing. It's it's a you know a speculative fiction that's fundamentally a domestic novel. Right. This couple and this third person you know this third person that comes in to to sort of throw a spanner into the works as it were and and the book also has therefore this i guess paranoia is 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 the word i'm going for like a sort of junior obviously narrating the story starts to develop this sort of creeping paranoia as well and of course that obviously then infects the reader you know Mm -hmm. what's going on here tell me about that that idea yeah well, I, I hope so. I, that's nice to hear. That was that was in my mind. I I, wa- I, I wanted readers to feel that, and I and I also I, I wanted them to feel it in sort of that in that uh, growing way that that you just said. That um, initially, I think his feeling is more one of confusion than anything. And and as he starts to as things fall into place a little bit, he starts to become more and more paranoid about things. So confusion evolves or sort of devolves, I guess, into paranoia. And that paranoia grows. And yes, I hope that's reflected into what readers are feeling as they read it, that they want to know a little bit more while feeling un- unsettled by what's happening. Um, and there's elements in, in the book that, while seeming normal, strike a, a, a sort of sinister tone. And I'm thinking particularly of the um, repeated appearance of rhinoceros beetles throughout yeah. the story. Yeah. yeah. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, I think again that was something that came about quite early, and it just it just sort of happened. I, I didn't plan on it. I didn't, but you know, the, I think the first time we come across these beetles in the book, Henrietta is up in a room preparing a room, and 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 she sees one, and you know, I think I think the way that each character reacts to, to these to these beetles is, is 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 important. What these beetles represent, and again, I it's been interesting for me to be promoting this book or you know go to readings or events i think one of the most common questions there are a few but one of them is is people asking me directly sort of what do the beatles mean uh and again i I feel like often in these situations i i I disappoint people because i don't i don't tell them what they mean just again from i have an idea for me why they're in the book and um why i picked them and but i think again if i were to tell in an interview, in a podcast, why, or a room full of people who are there to at a reading, then the downside would be that everybody would 
um, think that. They would, they would say, okay, well, this is what the author intended, so this is what I should think. Whereas I think if I don't say, people who read the book will have their own interpretation of that. And, and that is more exciting to me, that people can interpret this book. And there are, I think, a variety of elements in the book like, like this, that people who read it and are, they will bring their own you know, backgrounds and their own experiences and their own bias to this story. And then they will hopefully talk about it. You know, I think that's, that's in my mind too. I, I, I know there are books that I read and maybe read two or three times and we'll seek out those, you know, friends and family who have, who have read the book where I will give them the book to read and then, and then I will talk about it. And, and I, I enjoy doing that. So I, you know, if, if there are elements of this book that uh, generates a, a discussion, I'm, I'm appreciative of that for sure. Um, we'll finish off with a brief reading from the book, if, if you would. But before we finish, sure. um, can you tell us something about the, um, the adaptation of I'm Thinking of Ending Things? Whereabouts is it? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, it's been really, uh, you know, um, an ir- interesting and, and positive experience. It came out of the blue for me. I, if I'm thinking of anything, it's a, it's a fairly internal, you know, philosophical story. So I didn't really anticipate that there would be an opportunity to adapt that to film. But it just sort of, uh, you know, by I think luck ended up uh, with with Charlie, and he was interested in doing it. And you know, he found the partners in Netflix who wanted to do it, and so it, it happened. And yeah, they're getting it's getting closer to happening. I mean, I, I, there's not a whole lot I can say yet, but I would say hopefully within the next year or so it should be available. I mean, that's a great thing about Netflix is you know when it's available, it's available, and people who anybody who has Netflix will, will be able to see it. So I'm, I'm just really excited about it. I, I think um, I've been a, a huge fan of of Charlie Kaufman's for for a long time since the first time I I saw Being John Malkovich, I think, and so it was kind of surreal for me that he he had even read my book. Um, let alone, you know, was interested in kind of wanting to adapt it. And he's just been very nice to me and generous with his time. And so the whole experience has been has been great. And I'm looking forward to seeing seeing the film myself. I think it's going to be I think it's going to be quite something. So could I get you to read us a bit of foe? Yes, for sure. I think what I'll do is um, I'll probably just read right from the very beginning because uh, that requires very little explanation. And particularly from this conversation, I think people. Um, they don't really need to know anything other than this is a story about this couple, uh, Junior and Henrietta, and the story is told from Junior's perspective. So I'll just start reading right from the very beginning. Two headlights. I wake to the sight of them. Odd because of the distinct green tint. Not the usual white headlights you see around here. I spot them through the window at the end of the lane. I must have been in a kind of quasi-slumber an after-dinner daze brought on by a full stomach and the evening heat. I blink several times, attempting to focus. There's no warning, no explanation. I can't hear the car from here. I just open my eyes and see the green lights. It's like they appeared out of nowhere, shaking me from my daze. They're brighter than most headlights, glaring from between the two dead trees at the end of the lane. I don't know the precise time, but it's dark, it's late, too late for a visitor. Not that we get many of them. We don't get visitors. Never have. Not out here. I stand, stretch my arms above my head. I pick up the open bottle of beer that's beside me, walk from my chair, straight ahead several steps to the window. My shirt is unbuttoned, as it often is at this time of night. Nothing ever feels simple in this heat. 
Everything requires an effort. I'm waiting to see if, as I think, the car will stop, reverse back onto the road, continue on and leave us alone, as it should. But it doesn't. The car stays where it is. And then, after a long hesitation or reluctance or uncertainty, the car starts moving again toward the house. You expecting anyone? I yell to Hen. No, she calls from upstairs. Of course she's not. I don't know why I asked. We've never had anyone show up at this time of night. Not ever. I take a swig of beer. It's warm. I watch as the car drives all the way up to the house and pulls in beside my truck. Well, you better come down here, I call again. Someone's here. So I've been talking to Ian Reid. We've been talking about his second novel, Foe, which is out in the UK from Scribner. Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for the questions. It's been uh, great talking to you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.